Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyds Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. When Europe really needed to be there for each other, too many initially looked out for themselves. When Europe really needed an all-for-one spirit, too many initially gave an only-for-me response. Welcome to EU Confidential, the number one European politics podcast. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels, and you just heard European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen speaking at an extraordinary session of the European Parliament on Thursday. Extraordinary in many ways, as most MEPs weren't in the chamber, but scattered around Europe, voting remotely for the first time. But even in this era of social distancing, the EU wouldn't be the EU without some late night summit drama. And leaders delivered more of that by video conference this evening in what sounds like a bitter dispute over European solidarity, with Italy leading the calls for the EU to issue joint debt, so-called corona bonds, to help get Europe out of the crisis, and Germany and the Netherlands rejecting the idea. To veteran EU watchers, these are, of course, familiar fault lines. Later in the podcast, we'll hear from Gail Smith of development NGO The One Campaign on what we can learn from previous epidemics. But first, talking of veteran EU watchers, let's get views from across the continent with our podcast panel. Hi first to Sylvia Shurili borelli in Rome. Hi, Sylvia. Hi. To Matt Karnichnik in Berlin. Hi, Matt. Hi there. Annabel Dixon, still hiding out in Norwich, are you? I am indeed. Hello. Hi there. And Reem Montaz in Paris. Hi, Reem. Hello. Um, Sylvia, let's start with you. Uh, We had you on the podcast a couple of weeks ago when the very severe restrictions, you know, came in uh, in Italy. Obviously, Italy is the the worst affected country now and, uh, you know, has the highest death toll in Europe. In some ways, you're the sort of voice of the future because you're further along in in terms of of how the virus seems to have spread and in terms of the measures that have been taken. So, I mean, can you tell the rest of Europe, is there any sign that they are working? Well, Conte yesterday addressed Parliament saying that he hopes every other European country gets on board and does exactly what Italy has done so far. Uh, in those places, in those small towns, especially where the lockdown measures have been implemented uh, in February, the situation has improved. Sylvia, how, how are, I mean, how are Italian people feeling? Well, it is terrifying. There is a sense that there is this black cloud over Italy and um, it's just not going anywhere. Um, the, the death toll is scary. The fact that many doctors are falling ill is also concerning. Um, the pace of the spread of the virus and also the number of people, especially in Lombardy, that are dying um, with um, a situation that is essentially out of hand, not just um, in hospitals, but even you know for families that can't even give um, their loved ones 
one's a proper burial is just um, taking, I think, a very, very big emotional toll on people throughout the country. Yeah. And how are you doing personally, uh, Sylvia? We talked to you a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we know you have a, a, a toddler at home and it, it's just the two of you at the moment. How are you doing? Yeah, um, I'm trying to cope as best I can. I've just tried, I've essentially given up on trying to keep things organized uh, because it's impossible. You know, I, I tried to work while looking after her and um, she's just starting to be a lion in a cage. She's acting like, you know, it's just hard to, it's hard. I don't know how else to explain it. We don't know when it'll end and it's been 17 days now. She hasn't been going to school for 25 days um, our routine is completely messed up. Uh, my husband is in here. And as you were saying, we're alone. So we just cope. Uh, we hope it'll be over soon. I'm okay. Not thrilled, but okay, I guess. Okay, well, we're glad to hear that at least. Um, I just wanted to, one of the things I want to talk about more generally is the whole idea of how you remain a functioning democracy or if you even can remain a functioning democracy in the middle of, of measures like this where freedoms are restricted and a lot of the usual checks and balances you know, can't really happen in the usual way. And we've got this extraordinary um, session of the European Parliament at the moment where most of the MEPs are not there. They're going to vote by some kind of convoluted procedure where they vote um, on paper and then take a picture of their vote. You know, it's all very strange. It is not normal, you know, parliamentary business as usual. And so I wonder, Annabelle, how's the, how is, how's the House of Commons, the House of Lords, how's Westminster dealing with this, you know, how to strike the balance between maintaining kind of democratic scrutiny, but also social distancing, travel bans, all of that? They've been very keen to keep the Parliament open and MPs um, have been travelling into Westminster from all over the country. Um, they finally broke up for recess last night, Wednesday night, and they won't be back for a month. But there hasn't actually been some criticism that they've almost tried to keep things going as normally as possible and not really setting example to the rest of the country. So so there's that balance between setting the example, but as you say, also holding the government to account. And they're trying to keep the select committees going, which is unusual during recess. That doesn't usually happen. So they're trying to bring in video conferencing. And we, of course, had the coronavirus bill, um, which passed yesterday. That's those kind of emergency measures, um, things like cutting red tape to help the emergency services cope, restricting events, shutting down pubs closing borders if needed. And there were people who were raising concerns about the sort of curb on liberties, which, you know, in, in any normal times, people would be horrified at some of the powers that this bill gives government. But the public mood is such that the opposition just had to say, no, we've got to back this, we've got to do this, we're doing it with a heavy heart. You know, there's no sign that the public wanted MPs to spend days and weeks debating this. Mm. Matt, you've got the Bundestag there, you know, passing this extraordinary kind of extra budget, right? 150 billion euros or something. And it's all being done in the space of a week. So how's that kind of debate playing out there? You know, that's obviously not the normal parliamentary procedure. You know, how's, how's Germany striking a balance? Is it is it a debate at all? It's pretty extraordinary how, how quickly they managed to push this through, considering the, the, the years it took for them to uh, debate much smaller sums over the uh, the eurozone debt crisis but the, the question is how long can they continue along this path and i think a lot of people here are already kind of asking that question i mean they 
the uh, the German economy can't uh, just be shut down, you know, for for the rest of this year. And uh, they're starting to wonder now what is the exit strategy, and nobody seems to have a a, a very good answer uh, to that to that question, or even the question if everything that's being done now is a little bit uh, you know overkill. Uh, Reem, in, in Paris, how are they, you know, obviously Emmanuel Macron has a lot of, of power anyway as, as president under the Fifth Republic. But is there that debate about how they get the balance right between, you know, keeping democracy going, but also um, dealing with this emergency? There's definitely that debate, especially since Macron has been constantly, you know, attacked and accused since he became president of uh, wanting to be more authoritarian than even uh, the powers that the Fifth Republic give the president in France, which, as you said, are are a lot. Uh, and today, in fact, on so Thursday morning, the Minister of Justice in France was on um, public radio and was being asked about, you know, oversight. What happens to the judges? You know, is the judicial system still working? For example, the Constitutional Council is no longer going to uh, be working as usual. And so the ability to sort of send cases up to the Constitutional Council is curtailed right now. And that's one of the oversight mechanisms that exists in France. Uh, this question of the Scientific Council uh, and relying on scientific recommendations is also coming up a lot because from the beginning, Emmanuel Macron has taken the strategy of uh, always referring to the advice that the Scientific Council uh, that he set up uh, has been giving him and advising. But now another question is coming up, which is, well, who is answering? Is it 10 or 11, uh, sorry, who is deciding? Is it 10 or 11 scientists who don't really have any democratic accountability and don't really have any democratic mandate? Or is it the president and the government who have a democratic mandate? Um, and so now, uh, you're seeing an evolution and also that strategy where uh, the president is now uh, taking a bit more time, marking a bit of a, a time difference between the, the moment that the scientific council gives its recommendation and when he uh, uh, announces uh, new decisions. We've almost had this sort of debate in reverse because the sort of government strategy at the beginning seemed to be very economy focused in many ways. And I mean, he had kept insisting that the scientific advice was telling them that, you know, the time now wasn't to act. So, so they were waiting and waiting and waiting. And he was under this huge political pressure to do, to do more. So we've almost kind of had the economic argument first. And, and the, the pressure has been such that, that now sort of almost health trumps economy with, with these kind of huge bailouts that, that the government keeps announcing. I would just add a point on the uh, on the economic um, aspect of this, which is that I, I think this is going to come to a head in, in the next couple of weeks, also at the European level. And we have the, the European Council meeting today, the, the, the virtual meeting in any case. And the Italian economy is coming under in, intense pressure already, and, and that will continue. And so then it's going to come down to Germany and, and France again, deciding how far they're willing to go in terms of uh, integration, in particular, of the Eurozone. And there's this discussion now about Eurobonds, these you know, so-called Corona bonds, which France uh, supports and a number of other countries have, have written to um, 
to Charles Michel uh, ahead of the meeting, uh, pressing for some kind of instrument that would allow for mutualization of debt, as the economists uh, call it. And, and this is something that uh, the same countries wanted during the, the Eurozone debt crisis in Germany and the Netherlands and other n- northern countries uh, always said no. And I, I think there's going to be even more pressure now because if, if this doesn't happen, the sort of divide between Southern Europe and Northern Europe in terms of the the economic outlook is only going to uh, widen. So, you know, this is not just a, a uh, health crisis or and an economic crisis in the sort of traditional sense. This could also very quickly turn into a, a another crisis about the, the future of uh, both both the Eurozone and the European Union. In Italy, there has been lots of talk about how uh, Europe uh, should intervene or support Italy uh, more than it has so far. Unfortunately, this again has turned into um, a debate around you know, how Europe is helping and whether Europe is helping. And the sense, the generalized sense has been that Europe has not um, helped sufficiently so far. And this will be a make or break situation um, for Europe and Italy's role um, within uh, the EU. Uh, There was some suggestion earlier this week that Germany would be open to Italy uh, asking for the European stability mechanism's help, essentially the EU's bailout arm. But uh, the Italian government, including Finance Minister Roberto Gualtieri, have pushed back against this idea. And in Italy, no one wants for an intervention of the European stability mechanism, and they do not want to end up uh, like Greece. So essentially, this is going to be a very um, complicated discussion, and I think there will be a delicate balance that will need to be found because Italy is the Eurozone's third biggest um, economy. It will need to borrow billions to support the economy, and it seems there are diverging ideas as to how uh, this should happen. There's a couple of very uh, quick points on this from the French perspective. One, Macron has been very adamant from the beginning to send a very clear message, especially toward um, Italy in particular, that they will do, as he keeps saying, whatever it takes. And it was very important for Macron that other European leaders use the words whatever it takes, as we saw von der Leyen do, for example, because Macron is very aware that this crisis is, you know, after it's a third crisis that Europe is being really confronted with after the debt crisis and then the migration crisis. And he's keenly aware that if Europe does not actually show up and step up uh, and make sure that countries like Italy and others, you know, Spain and others don't feel like they are alone and abandoned by the rest, then it's going to be the end uh, of Europe and the EU um, as as he wants and as, as he imagines it uh, to be. And on that, it's been very interesting to see just how badly uh, the European countries have played Uh, the communication uh, war. Uh, So you'll remember in January, the EU and France uh, included, of course, sent 56 tons of medical aid to China when China was facing its, its, you know, the height of its epidemic, its coronavirus epidemic. And the Chinese, I am told by multiple uh, sources, that the Chinese government asked 
uh, the Europeans not to make that public because they wanted to save face. And then what did the Chinese do? They turn around now and they constantly um, sort of show in, on television and on social media just how much they're helping the Italians when the, the Europeans aren't. And there's no question that, you know, the French and the Germans at the beginning did not deliver enough masks or any masks quick enough. But it has to be said that by now, France and Germany have delivered as much, if not more, masks and respirators to, to Italy. And unfortunately, they have not done a good job of making that public enough and countering, you know, the Chinese, the Cuban, the Russian sort of propaganda wars that they're waging on Europe. And, and that is also a part and a dimension of this crisis. Yeah, I do think we, we, we're seeing that now. We saw Germany uh, take uh, a, a number of patients from France, from the Alsace region, and we saw other uh, European countries do the same. The numbers are very uh, small, but obviously the symbolism is significant. And that seems to be what was l very much lacking in the early days, right? That, uh, as you say, the communications, the message that we're there from you and, and here are some tangible ways we can show that we're there from you. That just didn't seem to to be there, right? And um, as you say, others have taken advantage of that gap. Um, yeah, maybe we should just wrap up finally. Uh, Sylvia, do you want you've been you've been in confinement longest? Any <laughs> any tips for staying sane? I've uh, downloaded this part of this um, app called House Party, and I've been doing lots of video conferences with uh, friends and my daughter's friends. I found that was useful. And also um, I've set up a few WhatsApp channels to share recipes and uh, parenting tips with other um, friends and parents from uh, my daughter's nursery. I found that really helped. Cool. So you can have like virtual play dates. Does that work with your daughter? It doesn't work very well. It doesn't work all the time. But, um, you know, the, if, if you put them on um, in front of an iPad, which is bigger than a phone, and they see uh, their friends' faces, I've found they're, they're interested and it does keep them busy for, for a few minutes at least. It's not like it saves my day, but, you know, it's something we look forward to every day and it's helping. Yeah. Every minute helps. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, Matt, what, what are your, your tips for staying, staying in the bunker? Oh, I'm not in the bunker. Is the, is, we're we're <laughs> is not it, we're fortunate that we're not, you know, on the same kind of lockdown as uh, other countries appear to be. So you can still go on walks in the park and that type of thing. Which yeah, we can do that. Too. It's yeah. true, we can do that. Yeah. But uh, I, that, that I sort think we kept me sane, got me away okay. from my kids. Yep, just keep your distance, social distancing. <laughs> that's important. I don't have uh, a problem with that anyway. It's no, sort of, you know, no, it's probably on both sides, it's a, it's a good arrangement. Uh, Reem. One is uh, it's really important to actually change into normal clothes and not stay in your pajamas all day and give yourself sort of a sense of structure in your day, almost like you were going to the office. And the other thing is the past week, actually, I've been thinking a lot about perhaps people who are less fortunate than a lot of us. For example, people who live in uh, violent homes, people who live with violent partners, um, and just how difficult the current confinement in France, where you can only go out once a day uh, for barely an hour for one kilometer around your home. And actually, I've noticed that this has also come up with a lot of government officials I've been talking to, and in fact, uh, they made an announcement a couple of days ago on television uh, for a helpline that uh, people suffering from this kind of domestic abuse or, you know, alcoholic partners can call to get some help. Now, I'm not exactly clear on you know, whether that means they can actually leave the house and go seek shelter somewhere else. But I think, uh, you know, if someone who's listening to us maybe in that kind of 
position or know someone in that position, they should know that there are uh, some resources that are being put in place on the internet, at least, and and on on helplines. Yeah, it's definitely a thing that has been uh, flagged as a possible consequence of this. Um, that uh, you know, there are lots of people who are not as fortunate as us in terms of the the household they live in and the effect that uh, this kind of confinement could have. Okay, well, we've talked for a long time. Christina, as ever, is going to have to try and boil it down to something um, comprehensible, but she'll do her, uh, you know, a top job as usual. Um, shall we call it quits there? Thanks, Thank everybody. Cheers. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Now let's hear from someone who knows a lot about major epidemics and what it takes to fight them. Gail Smith, CEO of The One Campaign. She was in Brussels a few weeks ago where she spoke to our reporter Lily Byer. Hi Lily. Hi. Kind of strange days. I mean normally uh, today uh, you and I and the rest of the Brussels politics team and in fact a lot of the political newsroom would be in the European Council building along with uh, hundreds of other reporters covering a a full-scale EU summit which is now taking place uh, virtually in a kind of reduced form. does feel kind of strange doesn't it? Very strange. Yeah, um, but we wanted to uh, bring our listeners uh, an interview that you actually recorded a few weeks ago. And it's funny that uh, time moves in strange ways these days. And obviously we were doing interviews, recording things for the podcast before coronavirus kind of overtook everything. And we wanted to bring a flavour of that interview, especially as uh, this one also covers coronavirus. So you were talking to Gail Smith of the One Campaign. Just explain Uh, who she is and a bit about what the One Campaign is and does. So uh, Gail Smith is the CEO and president of the One Campaign, which is uh, an advocacy organization that uh, tries to raise awareness and fight extreme poverty and disease. Um, They do a lot of work in the developing world and especially in Africa. And um, Gail Smith's background is actually quite fascinating because she is the former administrator of the United States Agency for International Development, USAID. So she has a lot of experience on the other side, uh, on the policy side, um, as a U.S. official dealing with the developing world. Right. Um, as we said, we recorded the interview a few weeks ago, and it's interesting. We, we talked about, uh, or you talked about, a variety of things, but uh, you did also talk about the coronavirus at a time when it was really just starting to make its impact felt in Europe. Anything in particular, you know, strike you about what she said? So what's interesting is that Gail Smith was in town, I think, mainly to talk about the EU budget, because what the One campaign cares about a lot is uh, the EU's overseas development spending. And at the time, uh, leaders were uh, really deeply involved in this mega negotiation over the blocks 2021 to 2027 spending. Um, But Smith does have a lot of experience dealing with the implications, especially in the developing world, of um, diseases as a former uh, U.S. official. Um, So it really struck me uh, how she put uh, the current crisis in a historical context and talked about the processes that need to be in place. I do think the international community is having to exercise the muscles that we're going to need increasingly in the future of how do you manage global disease threats. And this this is a real one. And while the risk and lethality are relatively low, I think the urgency of it is quite real. And what I hope governments will do in addition to 
putting out factual public information and testing and tracing and containment and treatment and all of those things, the search for a vaccine, is take note of the opportunity we've got to complete the building of the global architecture we need to manage these kinds of disease threats. We made progress after Ebola. You know, one of the things we discovered in the Ebola response is the world was very, very ill-prepared for a lethal epidemic like Ebola. You know, the, the availability of uh, the suits that practitioners had to wear. Uh, the Ebola treatment unit, which actually was pretty much invented and created from the initiative of the NGO community rather than governments, our ability to move infected people who, that was at biosecurity safety level four. A lot of those things were put together of necessity. They weren't necessarily all waiting in warehouses for when this happened. And I think the good thing that happened in the immediate aftermath is there was recognition that we needed to build surveillance capacity, laboratory testing capacity, get more governments to honor their commitments to meet what are called the international health regulations, which is the sort of regulatory system that says if if we have a lethal disease here, we'll share samples, all those kinds of things. But then people lost interest. It's like, well, okay, let's move on to the next thing. And so now we've got this new, less lethal, but definitely global virus that is teaching us that, you know, walls don't matter, go anywhere, equal opportunity, virus. Um, and I think it's exposing the strengths, but it's also exposing the holes in the system. And so my measure of how we respond to this is kind of in two parts. One is what's the response now? Are we iterating and learning? Because you learn something new every day in these things about contagion periods and incubation and all those things. Uh, but are we then also putting in place the things we need? Because this is a dry run. I mean, this is a warning shot. We all know this is going to happen with greater frequency, and we've got to have the regular or the, the regular systems in place to manage it. Yes, it'll be crises, it'll be urgent, but we can't reinvent how we respond each time. We've got, we got to get down. So I think that's one of the things to look for. It's fascinating. It is. It is. Um, and again, I think some of the response has been very good, but we can tighten it. And we're smart enough. You know, the, the only, um, again, at a time when there are a lot of people questioning the utility of multilateralism, this is a reminder, uh, whether you like it or not, that virus is going to pay no attention to whether you're in the G7 or the G77 or whether you like the UN or you don't, they're going to go after everybody. So we, how do we build that system together more more effectively? That was Gail Smith of the One Campaign talking about the coronavirus. But as you say, Lily, she was in town to talk about the EU budget, which is a matter that still remains to be resolved. This is a new budget that's meant to kick in at the start of, of next year. And what's the what's her focus there? What's, what's her ask from the EU in terms of uh, development funding and how that plays into the next budget? 
So the one campaign is focusing on a part of the budget, the proposed budget that is known as the Neighborhood Development and International Cooperation Instrument. Um, under a proposal put forward by the European Council's President Charles Michel earlier this year, this section of the budget, which focuses on overseas aid, would get about 75.5 billion euros. But at this point, with the coronavirus crisis raging, I think it's pretty clear that um, the budget debate that we had just a few weeks ago will be a very different one once we come out of this crisis. So uh, it's really hard to tell how much money EU leaders will be willing to put toward overseas development aid uh, when this crisis is over and when they'll be wanting perhaps to focus more uh, inward on helping Europe recover. From your conversation so far with people who are involved in the budget debate, can you give us a sense so far of how you think it's it's changing as a result of the coronavirus? People are beginning to realize, you know, diplomats that we talked to and other officials, that this is going to be a huge dilemma because the EU is already a bit behind schedule when it comes to uh, deciding, signing off on the next budget. And now they're falling even more behind. And at a time when leaders publicly are talking about the need for the EU to invest more in order to help the economic recovery uh, once this crisis is over or nearly over. So it is um, a, a huge problem. Uh, on the one hand, leaders don't have the time to negotiate a new budget, but also they really need that budget in place in order to implement things that they are promising to their citizens. Right, we had Charles Michel talking about a Marshall Plan, a new Marshall Plan, and, and talking about the EU budget being somehow uh, part of that. Another point I think you picked up is, of course, if this has a big effect on the EU economy, as we expect it will, then suddenly when you're talking about uh, normally the budget debate is done in terms of percentage of gross national income, right? The the kind of economic measure of each country. But if those number if those economies are going to shrink, then the numbers shrink too, right? Absolutely. I think right now in a lot of capitals, there must be some financial experts sitting down, recalculating and taking a totally fresh look at their positions on the EU budget, because with smaller economies, with a possible recession, um, some countries may not want to contribute as much as they had originally planned to the EU budget, while others may be vying for a bigger budget because they think that they can get more out of it. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of recalculating going on right now. Indeed, and we'll stick with it and uh, follow it uh, wherever it goes. Lily, thanks very much. And that's all we have time for on this episode of EU Confidential. If you enjoyed the podcast, we'd encourage you to rate it by clicking some stars and by writing a review. You can also email us at podcast.politico.eu. We'll be back on Monday with another special episode focused on Europe's response to the coronavirus. In the meantime, thanks to our producer, Christina Gonzalez. And wherever you're listening, thank you for listening.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.